Thank you for being here this morning. Good morning to you. Welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church as we make our way through Mark's gospel and look this morning at a passage that normally we don't look at unless we're a bit closer than we are to Easter. This is a Palm Sunday passage. It's not Palm Sunday. We're in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, the uh, triumphal entry of Jesus. If you little theologians, I'm glad that you're here. I'd like for you to uh, work on a piece of artwork to give to me at the end of the service. Uh, draw for me a picture of a uh, fizzy drink, uh, a glass of Coke, all the tiny little uh, bubbles. Uh, let's see some details. And I will uh, say hi to you at the end of our service. You can give me uh, those pictures. Mark chapter 11 is where we are, but let's do this first. Uh, let's spend some time in prayer before even the reading of God's word. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you very much for meeting us here uh, in this particular occasion in a particular way. We thank you for this opportunity to uh, be with brothers and sisters and to worship Jesus. And we ask that as we spend time uh, in this scripture from Mark uh, 11, uh, that you by your spirit would teach us what we need to understand and that you would equip us for the week to come with your very holy word. We thank you for being with us in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, Mark chapter 11, uh, beginning at verse 1. And when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, as they and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, Why are you, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of our Lord. Well, here we are, aren't we? We're embarking upon the very focal point of Mark's gospel. Did you, did you know that one-third of Mark's gospel is actually occupied here in these last seven days of Jesus' life on earth? And it begins right here in Mark chapter 11. I'm going to attempt to divide this passage in what I think is a natural break uh, between verses 1 through 7 and verses 8 through 11. The first part of this passage, you can see it before you, it's clearly about the actions of Jesus. Jesus has taken charge. But then in verse 8, there's a shift, and uh, now we begin to look at a kind of uh, celebration. And we began with a vocal leadership of one, and then this passage seems to end with a celebration not of one, but a celebration of many except for verse 11. 
That celebration of many that begins at verse 8, I want us to uh, focus uh, on the very last verse. And it's not really a celebration of many, is it? It begins that way in verse 8. It's almost a celebration of no one. Because for whatever reason, led by the Holy Spirit, Mark closes out this event in verse 11 of Mark chapter 11. In verse 11, well, hmm, it's pretty anticlimactic. It ends with a bit of staleness. You see, this is the reason why many who study Mark's gospel struggle with the fact that it seems to include not triumph, but an abysmal lack of triumph. If you have an ESV, it probably says uh, the triumphal entry. But I dare you, what's the proof of the triumph? It doesn't seem triumphal at all. The triumphal entry without the triumph. Thus the illustration of a fizzy drink. For whatever reason, I'm pretty sure it's not bad parenting. My mom and dad actually allowed my brother and I to drink Cokes at a pretty young age. I don't know why. Don't judge. But now, in my 50s, I continue to love fizzy drinks. And everyone knows that the Coke loses its fizz over time. And I want you to think about the crowd that begins in verse 8 as a fizzy drink but the fizz goes away after a while. And you end up in verse 11. Jesus, he makes it. Psalm 118 is about entering the table. Jesus, he makes, or entering the the temple. Jesus, he makes it to the temple, but the fizz is no longer there. The fizz has become just syrup. Jesus is in an empty temple alone for perhaps the 12 disciples, for sure Mark tells us that, and maybe one or two Middle Eastern mice but no fizz. I preach this scene many, many times, and yet I always wonder each time uh, about the attitude of the crowd. And I'm asking you to wonder that as well as we look at this passage. What is the attitude of the singing crowd, the words they seem uh, so enwrapped? But is the crowd really praising Jesus? But one thing Mark makes very clear is that whether it's praise or not, the fizz goes stale at the very end. For that reason, I think what this passage has for us is that uh, Jesus, he is the king of kings and he deserves our praise, but he deserves the kind of praise that doesn't go stale. And I wonder how many of us are here this morning feeling as if our praise for Jesus has grown stale. And I want us to begin with the first seven verses I said, and pay special note of the deliberateness of the king. Jesus is very, very deliberate. I mean, you see in verse 2 that Jesus, he commands his disciples. I mean, you look at verse 2 and you see this long list of commands, uh, where to go. You see what he says, into the village in front of them, where to go. And then what to do, untie the colt and bring the colt to me. And then, uh, not only that, but what to say. The Lord has need of it. Where to go, what to do, and what to say. That's a pretty specific task, and in fact, a task that need not take any more than two hours. But there you have the driving force of the first seven verses. And this may be simply Jesus behaving uh, as the kind of king that he knows that he is. He's asserting his authority over people, and he's asserting his authority over even possessions, a cult. 
he's taking what's his because he's, after all, the king. And later in the week, Jesus is going to do something very similar to this when he's going to send two of his disciples into the city of Jerusalem to secure a place for them to celebrate the Lord's table. And again, it's the, it's the king assuming authority over people and possessions. There's a little bit of a strange echo, though, in this the sending of two people. Do you remember when Jesus did that before in Mark's gospel? In Mark chapter 6, I mean, what do you think of when you think of Jesus sending two of his disciples on a special task? Well, you can look at Mark 6 and see. It's sending his disciples into the various villages that they would proclaim the message of the gospel. That's what Jesus is doing way back in Mark chapter 6. And he gives them very specific commands, doesn't he? No bread, no money, stay in a house only if you're permitted. And then he actually told them what to say, that they would uh, proclaim to whomever would listen to them that they should repent and believe in Jesus. Jesus gave strict instructions to that two-by-two ministry, and that was a ministry of proclamation. It really seems to be happening right here in this scene. Right on the edge of Jerusalem, Jesus, he's doing it again, sending two that they might proclaim a message. He's telling two disciples where to go, what to do, and what to say. Just like sending the two as they were preaching the gospel in Mark chapter 6. Do you think they're doing the same thing here? Strange behavior, no doubt. Seizing upon a colt, untying it, walking away with it. Sounds really similar to theft. But do you think he's preaching the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus, he's come to deliver us from our sins. And that as Mark says in Mark 10, verse 45, that he came uh, not to be served, but to serve, giving his life as a ransom for the many. You think that message is evident here? Well, if it's evident here, it's not very direct. It's a little bit hard to see, but Jesus often teaches that way understanding of who Jesus is and what he's come to do doesn't happen until his body is glorified, raises from the dead. But I think that message of the gospel is evident here in the deliberateness of this king. In fact, John Calvin says that everything that Jesus tells his disciples to do is actually ridiculous, makes no sense at all, unless what they are doing actually displays some kind of gospel message. And the gospel message that's displayed in those strange acts is a gospel message from the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9 of Zechariah. You know, these disciples following the commands of Jesus, they're actually uh, preaching a gospel message. Zechariah, you may not know who he was, but he was a priest who wrote at the very end of the Old Testament in the 500s B.C., And when Jerusalem had been crushed by the Babylonian Empire, turned to a pile of rubble, notable people were carried away. And Zechariah, he may have actually been one of those notable people. But after several decades, Zechariah was allowed to return to Jerusalem as an exile. And as a priest as he was, uh, he was one of the men who was actually motivating the people to continue to uh, build the tattered temple. Zechariah was motivating people that they would rebuild that old temple. And Zechariah was doing that by preaching a message of repentance to the exiles. Not too dissimilar from the, well, disciples preaching a message of repentance to the various villages to which Jesus sent them. 
And part of the, the preaching ministry of Zechariah was that the righteous king of Judah, the one holy one, would return to the city of Jerusalem and that he'd return in a very unique way, almost to mark out who he is. He would return not as uh, the king of Babylon came into Jerusalem with force and power, Zechariah in Zechariah 9.9 says that this king is going to return to Jerusalem in a humble way. And he would come not just in humility, but with a humility that would actually serve for the salvation of the many. And what Jesus is doing here by issuing commands to two disciples is he's making sure that the gospel is not merely preached, but that the gospel is put on display. I don't believe for a moment that any of the disciples were crystal clear aware of this at the time. They seem to be aware of something, I think, from verse 7. But the disciples themselves, they don't know exactly what Jesus is doing. But I also don't believe that uh, many of us, even though we profess faith in Jesus Christ, we believe how our own lives of personal holiness actually serve to proclaim the gospel. Listen carefully to what I've just said. The disciples, they don't understand how it is that these actions are a proclamation of the gospel. But you, my brother, my sister, how often do you understand your holiness as a proclamation of the gospel? Let me be a little bit more specific. The work of the church is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. It's Matthew 28. Well, What is our Christian life supposed to be if it's not in obedience to the commands of our good King Jesus? What is our life supposed to be if it's not to be an expression of the fact that we don't belong to ourselves, but we belong to King Jesus? I don't always understand precisely how my holiness displays and advances the message of the King of my life, but neither do you. I know that my lack of holiness I know that my unkindness towards my neighbor, my ignoring the needs of my neighbor, I know that these things hinder gospel proclamation in some way. I feel that. But I don't always know how a kind word or a generous gesture make the gospel known. And yet, I'm commanded by my king to love God and to love others. I'm in fact called to obey the will of my king even if I don't understand exactly how obeying the will of my king actually advances the message of my king. And it may be that these two disciples are experiencing exactly that as they carry through the strange commands of Jesus. Where to go, what to do, and what to say. I wonder what we as Christians think the kingdom run by Jesus is actually like. Do you really believe that the kingdom run by Jesus is a carefree kingdom, a kingdom that is run in such a way that the king squanders the wealth of the people with lavish parties and he gives privileges for just a few while in the basement he executes his political foes with injustice? That's pretty graphic, isn't it? And if you're here this morning and you profess faith in Jesus, you never say, well, that's the kind of kingdom that my Savior runs. Well, if it's not the kind of kingdom that your Savior runs, what kind of kingdom does your Savior run? As Christians, we have a tendency to think that the king runs his kingdom in such a way that he has his areas of domain and I have my areas of domain. 
He has a kingdom, to be sure, but I have a kingdom as well. And Jesus is never going to disrupt my own desires, never going to disrupt my own will. I'm low on the org chart, to be sure, but I'm still there. I have my domain. And there's a sense in which that's biblically true, but there's a real sense in which we abuse that. And we think, surely, King Jesus wouldn't prefer that I do something that actually is painful for me. Surely, King Jesus wouldn't demand that I would set his will before my will in any and every circumstance. Surely, there are details of my life that King Jesus actually doesn't care about. But in fact, we belong to him. He is our king, and he has the authority to, well, tell us where to go, what to do, and what to say. We often as Christians think that our small uh, obedience to the king just doesn't matter. But I think this passage tells us that our king is a detail-oriented king. We tell ourselves that he doesn't see all of my actions, he doesn't hear all of my words, he doesn't know all of my thoughts or all of my loves. He doesn't see where I allow my eyes to linger and he doesn't understand all of my very complex and very well-intended motives. But he does. He's your king, and he wants all of you. And he allowed his body to be broken and his blood spilled out, that he would have all of you. What kind of a king would care about all of the details that we see in verse 2? He's that king, and he cares about where you go and what you do and what you say. But look at this crowd. Beginning at verse 8, we have this uh, picture of a crowd that uh, actually uh, stands up and seems to be saying and doing something. But how sincere is it? We shouldn't forget that at this moment in time, uh, Jerusalem is tremendously crowded. Uh, There are Jews uh, arriving from all over the Roman Empire. They're everywhere. And this is the celebration of Passover. But something begins to happen that's a little bit strange, and you can see a hint of that in verse 7, as the disciples, we don't know exactly why, but as they bring Jesus this colt, they actually place their own cloaks on it that he would take a seat. We've never seen the disciples doing that before. It's certainly a mark of generosity, perhaps even reverence, but Mark doesn't tell us what's going on in the minds of the disciples. Do they realize that Jesus is the deliberate king asserting his kingship? So they sense that the promise of Zechariah is being fulfilled in a very specific way, or are they just being polite? Mark doesn't tell us, but what is clear is that in the crowded city of Jerusalem, there's this crowd, and the crowd, it seems to gently gather strength, and many people begin to spread their own cloaks on the road before Jesus, perhaps copying the disciples. Many of the crowd are those who've witnessed the ministry of Jesus as he's neared Jerusalem. Some, perhaps, have actually traveled with him at length, uh, conveniently making their own way from north to south. Some certainly were with Jesus when he raised Lazarus from the dead. But a portion of that crowd, they begin to lay down their own cloaks, and they begin to allow the cult to walk on those cloaks. Many commentators notice that uh, this uh, would be a mark of poverty to take off the clothing uh, in which you've worn and lay it before uh, a regal figure. It's a mark of poverty. The wealthy would be more likely to bring specially made blankets and rugs to lay down before the monarch, and then the monarch would keep those as a gift. 
So it's a poor crowd, but it's also a hastily assembled crowd. If you look at verse 8, ask yourself this. You think they arrived with the leafy branches ready to go, ready to receive King Jesus, or if they cut them down as Jesus is slowly making his way? This is actually very clear in Matthew's gospel. Mark isn't explicit. But you get this uh, sense that what's happening as Jesus comes into Jerusalem is like the reverse of a surprise party. You know how a surprise party works. All this preparation, and then there's one person who doesn't know what's happening, and the one person is on the doorstep, and they come in, and everyone shouts surprise. This feels like the reverse. Jesus is the only one who knows really what's going on. Everyone else is surprised, caught off guard, start hacking down leaves, start throwing that which they have on their very shoulders. One of the great mysteries of the triumphal entry is how much the crowd actually know and believe about Jesus. This is actually really debated. These actions of covering the ground are followed by loud praises. And Mark, he actually uh, gives us a picture of this uh, cascading scene that develops almost like a frenzy. Uh, we might think of a small protest that grows, but this seems to be different. They shout, Hosanna, which means save us, we pray. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see that in the passage. But that shout in verse 9 comes from the words of Psalm 118, and it's a psalm uh, of King David. And what you may not know is that this psalm is a little bit of a low-hanging fruit of scriptural credentials. Some people will defend the fact that they love scripture, scripture memory by quoting John 3.16. What do you think about that? Is that really proof? And some people uh, might uh, say that they uh, are especially patriotic because, after all, they have the entire Pledge of Allegiance memorized. Psalm 18 is a little bit like that. It's not a real credential. It's something that would have been sung at every Passover. And then this phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, uh, doesn't actually refer to a king in Psalm 118. Is that troubling to anyone? That's not a king. That's actually the faithful pilgrim who is returning to the city to worship at the temple as an act of obedience before God. It's the kind of expression that you'd make to any pilgrim who is doing what they should do. It's a statement about righteousness, not a statement about kingship. And then that word, Hosanna, save us, we pray, well, those are words that would be offered to any pilgrim that comes. And then they cry out in verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Well, that's not a part of Psalm 118 at all. In fact, this very notion that King David is our father, well, it's not in the Old Testament. And the notion that King David is our father is neither in the history of Judaism. It's a very unique expression. It almost feels as though it's made up. That's not saying it's untrue. But it seems as though there's a lot of freelancing that's taking place in this crowd. And then they say, Hosanna in the highest. Again, not a biblical expression. It was common in Judaism to add the phrase, in the highest, at the end of an attribute of God. His knowledge, his authority, his wisdom would be knowledge, authority, and wisdom in the highest from the heavenly domain. This may be a bit challenging to some of you. But I want you to be challenged. We don't know very much about the praises of this crowd. It seems to have just grown on the spot. It wasn't there before. 
And you don't get the feeling the praise of, crowd is, the praise of the crowd is meant to be especially instructive to us. Don't forget who Mark is writing to. Mark is writing to uh, G- uh, Gentiles in Rome, followers of Jesus, but followers who know very little about Judaism. And Mark, he just doesn't take very much time, if any at all, to help us understand what's going on in the Jewishness of this experience. All Mark shows us is Jesus taking authority, deliberate action, sending two of his disciples with precise details, and then riding into Jerusalem as a king, asserting for himself who he is, but doing so with the authority of the Old Testament. And we could ask Mark, I mean, if we had Mark in front of us, Mark, who in the entire event understands the man who is entering Jerusalem? Who in this entire event understands what this man means by entering Jerusalem? It's not the crowds. They don't quite get it. And perhaps not even the twelve. They're speechless in verse 11. But Jesus, he understands who he is and what he's come to do. He understands better than you what you need. And what happens to the crowd? The crowd apparently dissipates. In verse 11, the crowd's gone. They welcome a holy pilgrim as a king. They sing about the God who saves, but then they fade. Mark casts this event in such a way that we're supposed to notice that nobody is at the temple with Jesus but the twelve. The crowd raises in fizzy excitement and then fades to staleness. Christian, does Jesus still say to you where you should go and what you should do and what you should say? Normally when I preach from the triumphal entry, it's on Palm Sunday, and I'm so thankful to have this opportunity of a Sunday in which we come to the Lord's table. Because what the disciples are commanded to do is very similar to what happens here at this table. This table is a picture of the gospel. And you might think that Jesus has his uh, realm of authority, but you still have your realm of authority, but that's not true. Jesus is the king who has come to execute the kind of kingship that is very unusual. He's a living picture of the good news of the gospel. That's what we see as Jesus rides the colt into Jerusalem. The king, he arrives. And that king will be victorious, but that king will be his own kind of king. A king of peace, not a king of fury. And if you're a believer whose life of praise has turned to staleness, your job is to go back to the first half of this passage and reacquaint yourself with the actions of the king. Get to know the king as he says he is. Look at his plan of asserting his kingship. He does this not by being like any other king, and neither does he do this by allowing you to persist with your own trite little kingdom. You want a king who kills every foe of yours on the spot? Well, that's not who Jesus is. Jesus won't swoop into your life to uh, kill that tormenting colleague, that inefficient colleague. Jesus doesn't swoop in to get rid of your employer, to increase your paltry paycheck. Jesus doesn't swoop in to free you from your uh, political leaders. He doesn't swoop in to protect you against the marginalization that culture forces on you. In your little kingdom, if it's bad, you want it gone. That's not the kind of king that you have in Jesus. 
He's a different kind of king. Do you feel stale? Reacquaint yourself with this king. He's the king who died for you on the cross. He exercises his kingship by knowing you, everything about you, rather than running from you. He's the king who locks his eyes with your eyes and allows his body to be broken and his blood to be poured out for you. This is your king. You must be reacquainted with him if you feel stale this morning. The crowd of Jerusalem needs reacquaintance with Jesus, and they got reacquaintance, and they grew stale. But we have an opportunity this Sunday to come to this table and remember that Jesus is a king, uh, not who uh, came to uh, be served by us, but to came, who came to serve us by dying for us. This table pictures that for us in a way that's similar to, the, to Jesus riding on a colt and picturing the coming of the good news of this king. What a great Sunday to look at the triumphal entry. If you're here this morning and you're stale, take in who Jesus is. See him at the table. Take note. This is what he did for you. You want to maintain your own little domain, your own sense of authority. But you didn't bleed for yourself. He bled for you. This table is for the stale. Come to this table. Remember, be nourished, and know that you are not meant to live out your days in this staleness under your own reign. Come to this table. He's the King of kings and deserves your praise always. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you for doing that which was necessary for our salvation, and we ask that you would forgive us for forgetting that. Forgive us for thinking that we rule our lives on equal terms with Jesus. Forgive us, Father, as your redeemed people replace our staleness with gospel vitality. In his name, amen.